and welcome to Technicast. Thank you for joining us today. If you're thinking you don't recognise my voice, that's because I'm new here. My name is Morag, and I'm one of your new hosts this year. Today, we're kicking off our life writing theme with Karen, whose research provides a fascinating look into the lives of Irish former nuns who left the convent in the 1960s and 1970s. Without further ado, I'll pass you over to her. I walked out in the nun's habit, and the morning I was leaving, the mother superior didn't talk to me. I think it was a bursar that gave me £50. That's what I got, £50. No clothes, no job, no shoes, nothing. And imagine I had to come home in the habit. It was the most humiliating thing. It was. I found it so humiliating and I think my parents found it humiliating. And I remember feeling guilty about taking the 50 pounds. Would you believe that? The conditioning was so strong and the brainwashing was so strong and the mind manipulation was so strong that I didn't think I deserved anything. I mean, if I had the insight that I have now, I would have asked for three years salary at least. I knew I would never, never, never come back. Not only did I never go back, but I never contacted them after I left, never. And they never contacted me, not once to say, how are you doing? Are you coping? Now I was 32. I had entered at 16, and maturationally, and in terms of life's experiences, I was still 16. I had never handled money. I had never had to make a decision. I had never lived and taken care of myself. These are Louise's words. She is describing the day she left the convent after 16 years as a nun. This was in Ireland in 1967. My work explores the life stories of former nuns. And why, and indeed how, did I come to research nuns who left the convent, as this is quite a niche project, although arguably all doctoral research tends to be niche. Well, my mother is in fact a former nun. She spent nearly 19 years in a convent before she managed to leave. And to state the obvious, I would not be here had she not left. So I've always been curious about why she decided to leave and how she navigated this seismic shift in identity from renouncing the secular world at 15 to then re-entering it at 34. At that time, this was 1968, there was still a stigma attached to leaving religious life. A spoilt nun or a spoilt priest was the term given to those who committed such transgressions. And how easy was it for her to slot back into life in the late 1960s? For example, at that time miniskirts were in vogue and my mother remembers feeling self-conscious about her knees, worrying that the rough patches of skin would betray years spent kneeling at prayer. She had been head of a secondary school before she left, so she was fortunate to have professional experience to fall back on which afforded her financial security. And it also gave her a much needed sense of continuity and familiarity. As she says, 
In some ways, I just left one blackboard in chalk and moved on to another. But what about others who left? How did they come to reimagine a different life for themselves? What was their experience of leaving and of life beyond the convent walls? Currently, no study exists which explores the testimonies of former nuns in the Irish context. As the daughter of a former nun, I realise that I'm in a unique position to help address these gaps and silences in the archive and ensure that these hidden voices are represented. However, my own place within the research is multi-layered. My identity as a researcher is bound up in this project. Yet so too are my roles as learner, as audience, as writer, as daughter, as I make sense of some of the family narratives I've inherited. I'm working with six women in total, four who left religious life and two who remained. The women all grew up in Ireland and entered religious congregations in the 1950s. The institutes they entered were not Irish in origin and they were active rather than enclosed orders. So you take simple vows of poverty, chastity and obedience. The women worked as teachers in various schools in Ireland, England and East Asia, and they spent between 15 and 27 years in the convent. So the period I'm looking at is 1930s to early 1970s. The women are all now in their 70s and 80s, and it is from this vantage point that they are sharing their narratives. I have been privileged to hear them construct their life stories as they consider how their experiences and the decisions they made shaped their subsequent sense of self. It's been very moving to listen to them reflect on their younger selves and on how things turned out and how they might have been different. A key point to emphasise is that the women entered before the Second Vatican Council. So Vatican II took place between 1962 and 65, and it's a significant moment in the history of the Catholic Church. It was instigated by Pope John XXIII, and the emphasis was on renewal and self-reflection. For example, after Vatican II, Mass was no longer delivered in Latin, and the position of the altar was changed so that priests now faced the people while presiding at Mass. Since the early Middle Ages, nuns, like priests, had enjoyed an elite status within the Church, which meant that, being vowed members of religious orders, they could achieve true spiritual perfection. However, after Vatican II, nuns were downgraded, if you like, and considered members of the laity. But they gradually gained more autonomy. For instance, they could learn to drive and they could form friendships within and beyond the convent. This would have been prohibited before. So when the women entered pre-Vatican II, the regime was still very harsh and rigid. An individual nun had to surrender her will to her superior and was no longer in control of her destiny. There was still this idea of breaking the spirit and becoming dead to the world. 
And what's striking in my study is the age the women entered. They were between 13 and 16 years old. My aunt also joined at 13. My mother remembers that my aunt's legs didn't reach the floor when she sat in her chair because she was so very young and small. Not all religious congregations would accept girls that young, but canvassing by religious orders was common at that time as getting vocations, vocations being the term used to describe the call from God to religious life. So getting vocations was vital to an institute's growth and success. And unlike the rest of Europe and North America, where vocations were dwindling in the post-war era, vocations in Ireland continued to flourish. In fact, it wasn't until 1967 that they began to decline. The Catholic Church is, of course, a transnational institution, and Ireland was an important recruitment channel for aspirants, that is, predominantly young women who wanted to become religious. Nuns representing various Irish and international orders visited schools and sometimes local farms with large families as part of their recruitment drive, often showing alluring films of life on the missions. This is how the women in my study were recruited, through their schools. Bridie commented that the religious orders raided the countryside. In fact, all of the women spoke of a degree of manipulation in the recruitment process. For example, Louise said that when she thinks back on it now, she feels that she had been groomed. And Bridie says, You were told that there was a light shining down on top of you from heaven, and you were picked, you were chosen. Really a stupid kind of way of describing a vocation. My mother had been enticed in on the promise of a scholarship. She had been thriving at school. On entering, she discovered that the order had in fact no secondary school and the aspirants were expected to progress to their leaving certificate, that's their final state exams, through self-study, a correspondence course and occasional evening input from the nuns in the primary school. She says the conditions were spartan. They were sitting on upturned butter boxes with another butter box for their belongings. Contact with the outside world was ruptured. Letters in and out were read. Convent life worked to erase a sense of individual identity through adherence to strict rules. I'm quoting my mother here as she describes some of these rules. You were not to speak about any part of your body and not to speak about your health in general and not to speak about, well, not to speak to anyone, it's better not to. Not to form particular friendships, that was a big thing. You were not to be more friendly with any one person more than another. As a grown-up, you understood what all this was about. Not to pass on impressions, it was a translation, it means not talking your heart out to anyone. You daren't really say, you knew you shouldn't say, I'm very lonely, I wish I could go home. That would be rather sinful to say a thing like that to one of your co-mates. 
So you're to be always in good humor, always smiling, always, you know, very respectful towards everybody. And again, on the surface, you are really dumbed down in the sense of not being able to talk much, not to talk about your life in the world, as they used to call it. So it was definitely a brainwashing thing, all with the best reason in the world, as maybe the nuns thought. Leaving, however, was not straightforward. The women recall many occasions when they expressed doubts to a superior about their vocation and were told it was the devil tempting them or if they left they would be damned and in hell for all eternity or that through their higher calling, as one of the women put it, one's relations down to the third generation would achieve salvation through our fidelity or that they would never be able to pay back the congregation for what they had been given, and they would submit and stay on. I'm fascinated by how the women eventually came to transcend these dominant narratives, and you have to consider the backdrop of Irish society of that period. Like in many other countries in the 50s and 60s, women were relegated to domestic rather than public spaces. In post-independence Ireland, the Catholic Church and state operated hand in glove. Being Irish was almost synonymous with being Catholic. Having a nun or a priest in the family boosted a family's social capital. So you have the particularities of the cultural context on the one hand and the women's growing sense of agency and criticality on the other. And for some of the women, it was their access to higher education, which enabled them to develop a sense of self and an ability to act and think independently of their life in community. And of course, there were structural changes too, such as the Second Vatican Council. And this is perhaps the core of my methodological approach. So through a close analysis of the women's stories, I'm looking at this connectedness between history and individual biography, between the personal and the socio-political. These days, nuns occupy a contentious place within Irish society. The fallout from decades of abuse scandals has radically changed people's perception of the Catholic Church. Nuns were responsible for historical injustices as we have seen in the findings of public inquiries into the mother and baby homes and Magdalene laundries, and as depicted in the Oscar-nominated film Philomena. And yet, this isn't the full story. Nuns also played a key role in advancing female education, as well as social care. And in Ireland, they formed the largest group of professional women for much of the 20th century. I think my research highlights the contrast which existed between the positions of power and privilege held by the religious orders in Irish society on the one hand and the hidden, self-sacrificing and often powerless life of the individual nun on the other. The authoritarian and repressive aspects of convent life in the pre-Vatican II era have been linked to emotional deprivation, social isolation and psychological problems 
and perhaps this suffering has not been sufficiently acknowledged for those who remained as well as for those who left. One of the women in my study, who is still a nun, spoke of the expectations around conformity and a blind obedience to rules. She also acknowledged how hard it was not being able to say goodbye to those who left. In her words, they were told when they decided to leave, they were told not to tell anyone. So they never told us, they just disappeared, you know, and I think that was awful. She recalls feeling that the bottom had fallen out of her world when she heard the news of a fellow sister's return to secular life. I think more nuance is called for to transcend this martyr villain trope. Congregations of nuns in Ireland are now in the final stages of the decline that began in the 1960s, heralding the end of an era. And one thing is certain, there is an urgent need to capture their stories, as well as the stories of former nuns, before details of their lives and work will be lost forever. Thank you to Karen for such an interesting paper. Following this, we had a chat to delve deeper into the life narratives of these women. Hi, Karen. How are you doing today? I'm very well, thank you. And you? I'm good, thank you. Are you ready to dive in? Yes, let's do it. Perfect. So while I was listening to your absolutely amazing paper, something that I was really interested to ask you was... um, What drew you to using a life histories approach over a kind of a more traditional approach to writing history? So I guess that a life history approach privileges subjectivity and in supporting a number of truths and interpretations, it doesn't foreclose possibilities. So I think the women's stories are so powerful that I wanted to find a way of foregrounding their narratives. And life history also emphasises the relational, which is really important to me, and even the aesthetic. And of course, the position of the researcher within the text can also make a difference. My work is really interdisciplinary and narrative and life history really support this way of working. And many years ago, um, I did a master's in French literature and I used narrative theory for that. And then when I did an MRes, I reconnected with narrative approaches, but this time through more of a social science lens. So in my analysis, I'm drawing on a number of narrative concepts which align well with a life history approach. So, for example, a core concept I'm looking at is narrative identity. So how we story and restory our lives and how we think about our past experiences can change depending on our present and our imagined future. So what's so interesting is that the women are now in their 80s and they're reflecting on their experiences from that perspective with a lot of hindsight. So I wonder how, for example, the women's stories might be different if I had heard them speak 20 years ago. That's so interesting. That's, um, I really like what you, um, you're saying about identity there. And I was wondering if I could just pick up on that. So you talk about how your um, identity is kind of important to the project in your identity as a researcher, as a daughter. Um, and I was particularly interested in the fact that you're using your mother as one of your, um, one of your participants. And I was wondering if you could talk a bit more about how that experience has been for the two of you working together on this. 
Sure, yeah. I mean, it's been hugely rewarding, but of course it brings with it a whole number of ethical considerations when you're working with family. So I've been able to anonymize the other women I'm working with, but of course this isn't possible with my mother, um, so she can be identified. And for me, this is then always about speaking to her about the work, showing her papers. I've written for conferences and bits of my writing. I think of it as a, a sort of continuing and relational form of consent, if you like. And as for my mum, she's very amused and, and kind of incredulous that anyone could write a PhD about her life. And I also think when, you know, when you're talking about research impact, with this type of project, it can have tangible effects on people's lives. So my mother has been back in contact with people from her former congregation and, you know, has strengthened relationships with, with them. So also there's a real intergenerational element. You know, as I said, my daughter is 15. I've got a son also. We've had so many interesting family discussions around, around this topic. That's so interesting. One of the other things that I was really interested in when I was listening to your paper was um, this idea of the kind of culture shock of kind of going into the convent so young, kind of in like the 50s and then kind of coming out several years later into this kind of um, counterculture of the 60s. And there's this, um, uh, I particularly liked the detail about um, the miniskirts and your mother worrying about her knees. I thought that was like a really lovely detail. Um, and I was wondering if I could just get you to expand a bit on um, the women's experiences of kind of going in and coming out and how that felt. Yes, yeah. And actually, um, on those sort of anecdotes, there's also, they had to wash their hair with Lux soap suds. And so uh, another of the women, Louise, was saying how, you know, she'd lost a lot her hair had thinned so much having kind of washed her hair with soap for so many years so so these were the <laughs> these are some of, some of the things they talked about but i guess in a more serious note they readjusted and they dealt with this culture shock in a variety of ways depending on their individual circumstances as well so certainly it was much harder for some than for others and my mother for example she feels very fortunate that things fell into place for her she left in 1969 and uh, free secondary education was introduced in Ireland in 1967. So she didn't have any problems getting a job. She met my father and she had a family. And this is something that she'd always desperately wanted to do. But for others, it was a lot more precarious. Another woman, Christina, um, who was 43 when she left and she'd been teaching in Hong Kong, and when she returned to Ireland, she hadn't finished her qualifications, so she found it very difficult to get a job. Uh, she also had a number of health problems, including an early menopause, so she realised that she would never be able to have children. And in her interview, she says that she thinks a lot of her life was just about survival. And this is sort of backed up by an Australian study, which documents how after leaving their congregations, Many nuns endured considerable poverty, um, mental and physical ill health, social isolation and a great deal of emotional pain. And of course, it's also Karen Armstrong's memoirs, which are quite well known. And she has also written of the many struggles she faced after leaving the convent. God, that's, um, that's incredibly sad, isn't it? Because you, you take all these um, vows of poverty and then you kind of distance yourself from them that um you then have to enter into this whole different realm of kind of a poverty you haven't chosen a kind of that's kind of 
socioeconomic that's um that must have been incredibly difficult for them mm. yes i think you know because we're talking they they came in before vatican ii and when mm. they left um you know changes were happening but very gradually and depending on the congregation so the transition you know and the support they were given it's probably very different now but in those days it wasn't managed very well mm. so um because just because i'm i'm not super well informed on this could you tell me a bit more about um vatican ii and what it means yes yeah, so vatican ii was um sort of a, a really significant uh, moment in the catholic church and it was uh, sort of it kind of took place between 1962 and 1965 and it was really about renewal and um kind of you know bringing the church into the modern era so to speak and so there were you know things like small things like the the altars were turned around in in churches during mass so that you know the 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 priests presiding over mass were now going to be facing the people and um, I think I said that one of the big things for nuns was you know they they lost this sort of this status that they had before and they just became members of the laity so kind of on a par with with uh, with the people and that that was for some a really big you know a big change in how they were perceived and I guess for some as well in terms of all the the sacrifices and the vows they had made I guess that caused some of them to question but certainly there was a huge exodus from convents after the Second Vatican Council but actually what's interesting in the case of the the women I'm speaking to is three of the four women they had wanted to leave prior to that you know they didn't feel they had a vocation and so they're kind of stories of of leaving if you like they were probably facilitated in a little way by the changes that were brought out by, brought about by the Second Vatican Council, but it wasn't the council itself that kind of prompted their changes. Uh, they were very clear about that. Mm, right. So it's kind of um, it's kind of this huge moment of change, but um, mm. it kind of creates it kind of opens up a a condition in which people might then be more open to considering leaving. Yes, I mean, there was a huge structural change. And I, I suppose what really strikes me is how damaging such a repressive and austere way of life, um, you know, w- that they were living before the Second Vatican Council and how suffering and sacrifice were normalized or even valorized. And I think that must have had adverse effects on people's well-being and normal functioning within the convent. Absolutely. Um, Which kind of brings me to something I wanted to ask you about, this kind of um, peculiar position um, of of nuns that you kind of articulate in your paper. You say that in many ways, um, despite ideas that people might have about nuns as being kind of socially conservative, the way they're kind of associated with socially conservative values, that actually there were a lot of nuns who were able to progress some quite liberal causes like women's education, social care. Um, I was wondering if you could talk a bit more about that because I think it's so interesting. Sure yeah so I guess it comes down to this sort of the portrayal of nuns I guess and to recognizing that there was a lot of positive and important work that 
you know, Roman religious have done. So, for example, although their primary motive was saving souls, they were responsible for opening schools and progressing female education. And this is a global achievement. And the same goes for their work in social care and as missionaries. And in the last century, becoming a nun also offered an alternative to marriage and motherhood when women were, you know, predominantly defined by their role in the home. So nuns were role models of professional women. And there is a general consensus as well among scholars that in the 19th century, nuns had far more autonomy and power. And it was only as the Catholic Church became more organized in the second half of the 19th century that nuns became more docile and submissive. So there were plenty of trailblazing nuns also. That's fascinating. Which, again, that kind of brings me to um, the kind of figure of the nun in kind of popular culture right so when you were talking in your paper about this kind of um unhelpful binary that's been kind of put forward um in our images about nuns this idea that like you know either they're victims or martyrs it was making me think of um the kind of the images of nuns you get in popular culture so i I, i'm assuming you've probably read um small things like these by claire keegan yes yes yeah Um, yeah but I was also thinking about the the nuns in the Blues Brothers, right? Um, so, like, the, so in small things like these, the nuns are very definitely the baddies, right? Whereas um, in um, in the Blues Brothers, the nuns they're not necessarily bad, but they are kind of formidable. They're kind of um, and much of the comedy of Blues Brothers is coming from like the power that these women have over these adult men from mm-hmm. their childhood. And so I was thinking about. Um, nuns and the way we think about them in popular culture and I was just really interested in what you'd said about the um, the unhelpful binary of like good nun, mm. bad nun, if you like. Um, I was just wondering if I could get you to talk a bit more about that. Yes, I mean it's such a complex area um, and I think sort of builds on the last question if you like about you know the, 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 the good work that they've done but you know there's also then this argument that you know by portraying nuns as evil caricatures this risks simplifying representations of the past and you know in in the case of Ireland where we've had um, abuse scandals like the Magdalene laundries and the mother and baby homes this kind of enables then state and society to absolve themselves of their part in Ireland's historical injustices Mm. just by you know um, I guess laying all the blame um, at the nuns doors and you know, Ireland was a very different place in the 1950s and 60s. And certainly it, you know, families also, there was, there was such a stigma attached to, and it was such a socially conservative place that, um, you know, it wasn't just the nuns who had kind of created this context, if you like. Um, but of course, there is absolutely no denying the part that nuns, certain nuns and religious orders played in the abuse which took place um, in the mother and baby homes and the laundries. Mm. I, I, I suppose um, it's just about creating space for nuance, isn't there? Because um, absolutely, yeah, it is. These are very, very complicated issues and complicated lives, and people can, you know, operate in a certain way in one scenario. No, absolutely. I mean, it's about kind of debunking this sort of uh, martyr villain trope, and 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 also thinking about it in an, in a more nuanced way. Mm, absolutely. And I think that they it's not that they are either victims or, you know, agents um, or victims. They can be, you know, it exists on a continuum. 
Well, that's fascinating. This has been really great. Thank you so much, Karen. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. A huge thank you again to Karen and to all our contributors. If you'd be interested in sharing your research with us, please do get in touch. Our details are in the link in the bio. Thank you for listening and see you in a few weeks. <laughs>